If you'll join me in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we are continuing this morning in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we will find ourselves in verses 18 through 25. You can find the text on page 942 of the Blue ESV Bible if you want to use that. The title of our sermon this morning is No Unbelief, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are hope, unbelief, and promise. Now, as I was growing up, I played a lot of the game of Monopoly with my friends. My family wouldn't play with me because they don't like to lose. But as a result of playing the game of Monopoly, I was led to believe by the chance and community chess cards that there would be far more instances in my life when the bank was going to make an error in my favor. Well. I stand here today and I can report to you that not once has the bank ever made an error in my favor. So I don't really know what was going on back in the day, but I think they really missed the mark on that card. But this isn't always the case, actually. Imagine if a bank owed you some money, but when they sent it to you, in that account, it had a few extra zeros at the end of it. That's what happened in Germany's largest bank, Deutsche Bank, in 2018. They sent a $35 billion collateral payment to an exchange that it does business with. Now, for some context, that is $5 billion more than all of Deutsche Bank's entire market value. Now, of course, it was all eventually rectified. The bank released a statement saying, we have rigorously reviewed the reasons why this error occurred. We've taken steps to prevent its recurrence in the future. That just means some low-level staffer got fired and they've all moved on with their lives. Now, I love you all very much. I want you to know that. But if I wake up tomorrow morning and there is $35 billion in my bank account, there is a chance you may not see me here next Sunday. I'm not saying you won't. I'm just saying it's possible that you won't see me. I will hit you up on online giving. Now, as nice as that would be, this morning we're going to look at how it is that as Christians, we have had credited to our accounts something far greater than $35 billion, something far greater than $100 trillion or $5 million gazillion dollars. The righteousness of Christ has been accounted to us. It has been credited to the account of every single person whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have been given a right standing before God so that on the day of judgment, He doesn't look at our account and say we have insufficient funds, but rather that we have more than enough to cover the cost. Not because of what we've done, because all of us have vastly overdrawn our accounts and we are in significant, deep, irreversible debt on our own. But because Christ has wired us all that we need and more from His account into our account and God sees our account and declares that we, though guilty sinners that we are, have had our debt paid in full and there is an infinite amount left over still. 
This is the greatest news in the world. And as we continue to think about what Paul is writing to the Romans, we're still in chapter 4 and looking at Paul's masterful explanation of Abraham and how Abraham was saved, not by works of the flesh, not by circumcision, not by obedience, but by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you'll recall that Paul is countering many of the arguments that he knew would be raised, particularly by the Jews against his preaching. He reminded us that Abraham has nothing to boast in, that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, so there was nothing there for him to depend upon. He showed us last time that the law of God has never been the means of justification. It has never been about obedience. It has never been about following the law. Abraham was justified prior to the giving of the law in the civil and ceremonial sense. So it was never about law-keeping. Paul is, is stacking his argument. It's like a layer cake, and you see every layer as he is cutting it. No boasting in Jewishness, no boasting in circumcision, no boasting in law-keeping. So what is left? All that is left is faith. And it was the same for Abraham as it is for you, as it is for me. One faith. And if we have that faith, then Abraham is our father. And the promise of God to Abraham that his offspring would be as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand of the sea is being fulfilled day by day among the nations. And so if you want to think of this chapter in sort of a summary fashion, you can think the first eight verses of chapter 4 showed us that salvation comes by faith and not by works. Verses 9 through 17 showed us that salvation comes by grace and not by works of the law. And now in verses 18 through 25, we end the chapter this morning and shows us, it shows us that salvation comes by the supernatural power of God and not by human effort. And as a result, as a result, we have an understanding of what true faith is and how it is that God credits our account with the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul is continuing his line of reasoning. We're going to look at these verses, 18 through 25, but for the sake of context, to kind of help us sort of run up to it, we'll begin back at verse 13 as we read to the end of the chapter. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now Paul has really been helping us get a better understanding of the true meaning of faith the true grounds of our justification, the true essence of what it means to stand upon the righteousness of Christ, the true thread that runs all throughout Scripture from beginning to end. He has shown us who we are in light of who God is and, and, and all that He has done. And in some ways, remember, we thought, okay, Paul, enough, we get it. We're pretty terrible people. We get that. He showed us that. But then Paul turned to the remedy. He showed us then the gospel. And in some ways, we might be saying now, okay, Paul, enough. We get that we are not worthy, that we cannot earn anything, that we, we, didn't, we can't do enough, we can't work enough for it, we can't do what needs to be done. Only Christ can do it and did it. And the gospel is great, and we are justified by faith alone. We get it. But we have to remember what Paul is doing. Paul is not a generalist here as he's writing in the book of Romans, especially in these first few chapters. You know, when you go to your uh, family doctor, your primary care physician, your provider, maybe you go to a physician assistant, that's probably your best bet, or nurse practitioner, somewhere a mid-level provider, they're the best. You're seeing, when you do that, you're seeing a generalist. That's someone who has a general breadth of knowledge and expertise on a whole range of things. So they can examine your heart, they can examine your lungs, your ears, your toes, and on and on. They treat the whole person. And they can examine all of you. And most of the time, they'll treat you and send you on your way, and you're good to go. But sometimes you need to go and see a specialist. And a specialist has all the training a generalist has, but they don't do that general stuff every day because they're focused on their specialty. So you wouldn't go to a specialist for something a generalist can do, and vice versa. So, in like manner, Paul has all of the generalist knowledge and understanding and training that comes out in a lot of his other letters. He was an incredible theologian. There's no doubt about that. The best. But Paul really specialized very specifically on two main things throughout the book of Romans. And you're going to maybe laugh and say, well, that covers a whole lot. But, but Paul specializes first in dismantling the objections of the Jews to bring them to see that Christ is the true and promised Messiah. And he also specializes in bringing the gospel to the pagan and Gentile world that they might see that Christ is their only hope. But what you see, the specialization of Paul is the gospel. And what we'll see in the later chapters of Romans is the implications of the gospel. So Romans is all about the gospel. That's really the specialty here. 
But right now, he isn't just sort of feeling around on the surface. He's not just sort of pushing and saying, how about that? Does that hurt there? What about there? What about, what do you think of this? No. Right now, Paul has on those silly looking glasses with the microscopes on them that your dentist probably wears. These precise instruments he has out. He's getting very specific things that he needs to work on. And we're we're taking our time to see every step along the way. Every maneuver matters in what Paul is writing. And so this morning, Paul is going to show us with specificity what faith truly is. We talk about faith a lot. We assume we know what faith is. We probably have a working definition of it. Maybe you quote from Hebrews what the Bible says faith is. But Paul is going to get even more specific and help us to understand exactly what faith is and how that faith leads to our accounts being credited with the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. So, first thing we see in verses 18 through 21. Faith is believing that God is true to His promises and can do what is otherwise impossible. One of the ways that faith is often confused or misunderstood is that it is assumed that faith is either something that is, for lack of a better explanation, derived from our own imaginations or it's somehow dependent upon our circumstances. We will often look at the circumstances before us and we will think, there's no way. This is not possible. And we grow anxious, we grow depressed, we grow fearful. But Paul shows us through Abraham that faith is not something that I just have, or it's not something that I just come up with. I don't just close my eyes and will it to be. Faith is, faith is not something that is based on whether or not something seems possible or likely or reasonable, or if it's not, I just say, well, I just, I'm just going to have faith. No, true faith is something very specific. True faith is believing that God can do what is otherwise impossible, and true faith is rooted not in my feelings, Not in my imagination, but it is rooted in the promises of God that He has given to us in the Scriptures. Think of how Paul is doing this. How is Paul defining faith? He's pointing to the Scriptures. He's pointing us back to Abraham. Think of what God told Abraham. I mentioned it already. That his offspring would be as vast as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And so here is Abraham, 100 years old, with his barren wife, 75 years old. And God comes to him and he says, you will be the father of many nations. And what does Paul say of Abraham? He says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. And he continues, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years. Or, even when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So what is Paul implying here? He's implying that if if faith was something that was derived from our imaginations, if faith was something that was based on our current circumstances, Abraham would not believe against hope in hope. No, he would weaken in faith. And he would have fallen flat. If circumstances were what mattered, 
his faith would have fallen flat. But how often do we think about faith being about circumstances? We think of our faith as something that we can strengthen or weaken, and it's really based on what's going on at the time around us. But really, the actual point of faith is that it really has very little and almost nothing to do with our current circumstances at all. The intention of faith is that we aren't focused here and now, but rather on the promises and the character of God. The things that are immutable, the things that are unchanging. So think about this. When, when faith is about that which is unchanging, it's never intimidated by obstacles that are presented before it. It can't be. You see, faith is, is not my imaginative powers to think of what God might do if my faith was just stronger. We often think about these, these mighty, faithful people, and we assume God does what He does with them or through them because they were able to figure out how to have more faith. But that's not accurate. That's not actually what the Bible shows us. Faith is not a moving target. So when God tells you at 100 years old, when you're childless, you're going to be the father of many nations... And when he tells you that your wife at 75 is going to have a baby, even though until then she has been completely barren, what are you going to do? Most of us, if we are honest, would probably have said, or we would have responded in the way that Sarah responded when she heard all of this. Remember what Sarah did? She laughed. She laughed at God. And then when she was called out about it, she said, I wasn't laughing. Oh, but Sarah, you were laughing. You were laughing in your unbelief because all you could see before you were your current circumstances and obstacles. All you could see before you were the challenges. All you could see before you was the earthly reality of your current situation. But you forgot that true faith is believing that God is true to His promises and that He can do what is otherwise impossible. You know, often I hear Christians, not as much here maybe, especially when I go to a place like Nigeria, but Christians will often say things like, I am believing God for X, Y, and Z. If they're sick, I'm believing God for good health. Or if they want a male child, we have great faith that God will give us a boy. Or if they're traveling, we believe that God will get us there safely. Think about those things. What is actually going on there? Are those things you can pray for? Yes, absolutely. Express the desires of your heart to the Lord. But what are they saying? Why would anyone say those things? Because those things are not rooted in anything that God has promised directly, are they? God hasn't promised you good health. God hasn't promised you a son or a daughter. God hasn't promised you safe travel. And so that's what I mean when I say faith is not something that your imagination brings to life and God is subject to the, the ebbs and flows of your spiritual imagination. No, real faith, true biblical faith is drawn exclusively from the promises that God has given. And it's from those promises that faith begins to take its character from God. Think about Abraham. 
Does anyone think that at 100 years old, Abraham was sitting around every day wondering whether or not his wife was going to have a baby and what it would look like? Abraham, this is a great illustration. He was not 100 years old wondering what life would be like if Sarah would just have a baby. Come on now. The Apostle Paul wrote it himself in the pages of Scripture. The inerrant, inspired word of God that Abraham considered his own body, which was good as dead. That is hilarious. The old codger had one foot in the grave. Homeboy was not thinking about having a baby. Listen, I'm not quite 40, and I'll tell you something. No. (laughs) hundred years. So... Here's Abraham, he's just sliding into the grave, and God says, hold on there, fella, I got something for you. A baby it will be. But here's what's amazing about what Paul points out. Notice, no unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. No unbelief. Isn't that wonderful? But notice why. Why was there no unbelief? Because Abraham was fully convinced. What, that he had enough faith? No. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what God has promised. Abraham understood that God is true to his promises, that he can do what is otherwise impossible Listen, even though there was no unbelief, even though the promise was unbelievable. Now, we all have a tendency. Listen, I see this in books. I hear this in sermons. It's not uncommon. We hear about someone like Abraham, and we think, Abraham had such great faith. He was such a faithful man. And then we're told, we need to just have more faith like Abraham. Have the faith of Abraham. Go out and be faithful. A mighty man of God. Now, first of all, if you're going to say that, you have to realize you're ignoring some pretty scathing realities about this man, Abraham, who wasn't always the most upstanding dude, was he? But here's the other thing. We tend to emphasize faith as though it's faith That is what is most important here in terms of looking to God. But do you not remember the repeated drumbeat of Scripture is that even even the weakest faith can hold on to the strongest promises of God? Here's what I mean. How many heavens are there? There's just one. There's just one. And the weakest believer that ever has been gets into the same exact heaven as the strongest believer that has ever ha- there ever has been because of the very same Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point is that our faith is not self-determined. You should never look at your circumstances and say, it will be okay because I have strong faith. In a more eternal sense, that may be true, but that's not what people usually mean with a statement like that. And when we think and say things like that, what we're really saying is that we have faith not in the promises of God. We have faith in 
ourselves and what we're able to come up with and hopefully God will conform to. We can very easily become the object of our faith and measure our, sensu- our, 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 not sensual, our spiritual, our sense of spiritual strength or spiritual weakness based on our own ebbing and flowing of how we feel each day or our sense of how much we love God today or trust God tomorrow. And that's never been the point. That's not what faith actually is, and it never turns out for anyone's good because we're so focused on ourselves, we're so focused on our circumstances. But remember what Jesus said. How much faith, we sang about it, how much faith does it take to move a mountain? A mustard seed. Why? Because the power to move the mountain is not in me, it's in the one in whom I am trusting. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, he said it often, they needed to hear it often, you too, he would say, oh, you of little faith. Why was that something that he always said? Because the disciples were so frequently looking at the circumstances instead of their master. And so their faith continued to diminish even to the last day when Jesus is being being brought to the courts to be tried. Where were the disciples? What were they focused on? The circumstances. So Paul is drawing our attention to a man like Abraham and he says he had no belief when it came to God's unbelievable promise. He didn't weaken in faith. He grew strong. Look, Paul says he grew strong as he gave glory to God. Brothers and sisters, the only way to grow strong in faith is to look to the Lord, to look to His promises, and give ourselves over to Him for His glory alone. Think of the God we're looking to. Think of Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's rhetorical. Martin Luther writes, man often breaks his promise because he does not have the power to fulfill it or because he is unstable. Even if such breach of promise goes counter to his will. Man often cannot do what he has promised because something intervenes which prevents it, since it lies beyond his power. But that cannot happen to God. He who believes God glorifies God. Conversely, he who does not believe God refuses to give glory to him. He who believes God recognizes him as true and faithful and himself as a liar, for he mistrusts his own thinking as false and trust the word of God as being true, though it absolutely contradicts his own reasoning. Everything around you may be happening and saying, I need to trust that God will do what he promises. That may contradict all of your own reasoning. And yet, God is true when every other man is a liar. So you see, true faith is drawn to God's glory. Have you, ever, have you ever sat down outside, maybe on the back porch or something on a summer night, and you've watched nature's dance between the frogs and the bugs? 
I'll often sit on my front porch. <coughs> the sun's going down, and the frogs know it's time to gather. And they all get right there around the porch light just waiting because they know. They know that as soon as that porch light goes on, the bugs are going to start flying right at it like kamikaze pilots. Just one after the other. They come flying in and they land and the frogs are there. They're ready to leap and feast. But you see, those who are faithful, those who are putting their faith in God because we know He is true to His promises, that they are, that they are sure. It is so predictable what we are going to do as we chase after the glory of God that we're like these bugs flying at the light. I see the light. There's some bright lights right there going right at them. We cannot keep our eyes off the glory of God, and so we're just drawn in. It doesn't matter what else is going on around me. It doesn't matter what the challenges are. It doesn't matter what the dangers are. Yeah, I might get swallowed up, but so what? I'll be with Christ. And the more we see of it, the more we're overtaken by it and everything in it, it becomes more obvious, and this is our focus. This is our aim, even if it seems completely unreasonable to everyone else around us. But the more we trust in God's promises, the more we cannot help it. We're drawn to God's glory. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't mean we're adding glory. That's not, that's not possible. He is all glorious. It means we're showing by our lives how glorious this God truly is. It means we're calling attention to His glory. And we're shining all of His excellencies. We're shining forward the, the radiance of His perfections. And that is the aim of all things in this world, is it not? To display the glory of God. We talked about this in Sunday school. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Glory be to Him forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> and so how do we accomplish our great end in life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever? We trust Him. We look to His promises and trust that He will fulfill them. That He is who He says He is, that He will do what He says He will do. Instead of trusting in our own imaginations, instead of concerning ourselves with the details of our current circumstances. So the second thing Paul shows us about faith, verse 22. Faith is the instrument that God uses to make us right with Him. Very simply, he says, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, once again, Paul is highlighting, this time in different terms, but Paul is highlighting the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is at the heart of Christianity, but we so often misunderstand it. Now, an important thing here to see is that faith is not a condition. So often we say justification by faith and believe that our justification is conditioned upon faith, which makes it a work that we have to fulfill. But that is not what justification by faith means. Faith takes its character from its object. Faith is not derived from the person who is expressing the faith, right? Faith is an instrument. Faith is the instrumentality by which we are justified. And the effectual cause of that faith is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. I know that's all very clear, right? <laughs> Let me try and illustrate this for us. I've used this before. I think hopefully helpful for you. 
When I was a child, <coughs> I would spend a lot of my summers and winters in the very hot and cold state of Iowa, visiting my extended family. My grandfather was a farmer. He had a huge farm, a bunch of big tractors and all of that. So I remember one year in the wintertime, my grandfather took one of his tractors and he attached a rope to the back of it. And a few of us grandchildren, we sat on an old car hood because every, every farmer has old car hoods laying around for some reason. So we sat on the hood of the old car hood. We grabbed the rope. We all held onto the rope. And he drove the tractor. And he pulled us all around the snow-covered field with his tractor. Now, we were just sitting there on the hood. What was the cause of our movement? Why did we move forward? You could say, because you were holding on to the rope. But that's not entirely accurate, is it? The rope is just a rope. It doesn't pull. It doesn't create momentum. It doesn't move us forward. The, the rope is simply there to transfer the power of the tractor to us. Are we tracking with that? So the actual cause of our movement then is the tractor, not the rope, you see. Now think of that in the same way. And realize it is very problematic if we put the wrong cause in the wrong place. When we say we are justified by faith, what is it that is making us a Christian? Let me be more clear. When we say we are saved by grace through faith, what is the cause is it grace or is it faith? Faith, in and of itself, is like the rope. It's there. It's necessary. I need to hold on to it. But it's simply the way of receiving what is happening by God's grace. Faith is the instrument. So why does that matter? It's very, very important. But what if we mess this up and think otherwise? What's the big deal? A lot of people, after they become Christians, will talk about the whole experience of that, where they are now, and they tell me they've been sort of soaring for a while as Christians. They get the gospel, the gospel changes them, they understand the gospel, they're not saved by being a good person, they're not saved by their good works, as we've seen Paul laying out for us. You're not saved because you always obey the Ten Commandments, nobody does. God saves you, He accepts you, He loves you, He welcomes you, He embraces you because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on your behalf. You're not saved by your good works. You are saved through faith in Him. So, your mind hears that, and maybe you say, great, I'm not saved by my good deeds, I'm saved by my faith. But be careful, be careful. All of a sudden, something starts to creep in. A lot of you have struggled with this. All of a sudden, in time, you're reminding yourself, I'm saved by faith, not by works. Faith, not works. My trust in Him, my love for Him, that's why God loves me. Not because of my works. And what's happening? All of a sudden, faith has become the cause of your salvation. The rope is pulling you instead of the tractor. And you get discouraged and you say, you know, when I first became a Christian, I just I felt like I was floating off the ground everywhere I went. 
Like I was walking around in life and, and I could touch the clouds. I was learning. I was growing. I was being changed. I was so excited about everything. But things have mellowed out a lot and I'm just feeling a bit stagnant. Not what I was. Where's the faith I used to have? Where's the love I used to have? Where's the warmth? Where's the passion? Have you been there? And then you ask your pastor, am I really a Christian? Well... Did God save you based on the quality of your feelings for Him or your love for Him or your trust in Him or your sense of His presence with you? Is that why God saved you? Is that what your salvation is based on? The quality of your soul? The quality of your faith? If so, you're never going to be a Christian. But here's the response to that. It's in the hymn that we sing regularly. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You ever think about those words? I dare not trust in the greatest, sweetest, most wonderful, most amazing, emotional or spiritual moment in my life. I dare not, but instead on Christ the solid rock I stand. Why? Because all other ground is sinking sand. We spend our whole lives after we become Christians fighting against our own legalism. We actually start as Christians as very staunch legalists, and it often become, it, it begins with the idea that the quantity and the quality of our feeling faithful toward God is that which determines God's acceptance of us. And then when something happens that shakes us, or when those, those feelings float away, we become very legal-hearted. Maybe God didn't accept me. If he did, why am I feeling this way? Well, that's because you have your eyes on the rope as the thing that's pulling you instead of this great, big, massive machine in front of you that is, is pulling you, that this rope is attached to that's pulling you along. What is the rope? Faith. What is the tractor? Grace. It's the grace of God. It's the power of God. It's the sovereign work of God. And it's all wrapped up in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you know what? The, the rope may be down to its very last thread. It may be ugly. It may be taped together. It may be frayed down to almost nothing. But is it still attached to the tractor? That's what matters. And we have to take another step here. You're a Christian by grace, and faith is a conduit through which that grace comes into your life. It, is, it, it means that the cause of your faith is not in you. The cause of your faith is in God and is given to you by God's grace. Your faith is not the cause of God's grace. I hope you get that. It's really important. Now, what a lot of people believe, maybe you, a lot of people teach that it's faith that comes before grace. They understand the Bible to teach that you believe, you give yourself, you produce faith, and as a result of that faith, God gives you grace. And you hear people saying things like, I made a decision for Christ. And when someone doesn't believe, you ask why they should. Often, they're tempted to tell you something like, well, you just got to have faith. You just have to believe, and God will pour all of His favor and all of His love on you. Then God will come in His power and His gracious energy. But here's the problem. Paul rather explicitly says exactly the opposite of that. 
Listen, if your faith comes before God's grace, what is your faith? You've turned it into what? A work. And as a result, you're going to have this great anxiety, you're going to have this great burden because you've become the author of your salvation. You have to live with the burden of always thinking that you have to keep up the quality of your faith on your own, the strength of your obedience. So you see, if faith comes before grace, how will you ever know if it's enough? I promise you, you're not going to get far and you certainly won't get there fast if you're trying to pull a tractor with a rope. And if you're the one pulling it along, how will you ever know if you've pulled it far enough? How will you ever know if your surrender is significant enough? How can you ever know if your faith is going to be the right amount? We cannot confuse what comes first and from whom it comes. We are saved by the grace of God alone through faith. Through the faith that God has given us and the conduit by which His grace comes into our lives. It is that faith that is the instrument by which we are pulled by the grace of God through this life. And trust me, you are being pulled through this life. <laughs> Last thing Paul shows us, verses 23 through 25. If you believe God it will be counted to you as righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Paul reminds us that the Scriptures are not just for those who they were immediately written to, but they were written for our sake also. In such a clear, simple way we see here, right? If you believe God, it will be counted to you as righteousness. If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead after he was delivered up by the Father for our trespasses, then you will be counted righteous in God's sight. Your account will be credited with the righteousness of Christ. You didn't earn it. It is not yours, but it's there. You look at your account and it is full. It is overflowing. You can never spend it all. It's in infinite abundance, the righteousness of Christ for you, believer. And that's the beauty of the gospel. As I've been in ministry some 15 years now, I've gotten older, I've realized more and more that the sure mark of a growing Christian is that they become more and more simple and less and less complicated. You know, when we're young in our Christian walk, I was here, I promise, we have a difficult time discerning what is really important and what really isn't. But in time, we get more and more clarity on just how straightforward and just how simple the gospel really is. And we get a better sense of our own unworthiness, of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's mercy, of God's love and His grace. And we start to simplify more and more and more. And we realize, you know what? I've majored on a lot of minors, and I just can't imagine on the day of judgment that these things are going to matter to the magnitude that I've made them out to be. It's like we all have this sense that God is just really going to give it to us one day. It's going to be this terrible tongue lashing. It's going to be a thousand lashings and ten years in the dungeon, and then maybe we can go free. But the more we understand what's really going on and just how it really depends on God and His gracious, loving, fatherly disposition toward us, and not only us, but all of His people, we start to live more free. We start to live more faithful. 
We start to look to God and trust in His sovereignty and that He is doing a work in our lives and the lives of all of His people and we don't have to solve all of the problems that every other Christian has. God's working on them. He's working on you, isn't He? We don't have to look to God and say, look, I straightened out all those idiots on Facebook. It was me. I can't believe they didn't know the end of the Gospel of Mark is a textual variant. Who doesn't know that? I can't believe they didn't understand the difference between add intra and add extra in the attributes of your nature, God, but I straightened them out. Really? Are those things important to know and study and understand? Yes, of course. I'm not downplaying that. But those things are there to give us an even greater trust in the God who is there, the God that we want to know. But are those the things we really want to hang our hat on at the end of the day? Not me. I want to hang my hat on communing with God. And the only way I commune with God is because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who has brought me to grab onto the rope of faith that I might be pulled along by His grace straight into heaven because I am firmly planted on the righteousness of Christ alone and my account is overflowing with an abundance of His righteousness. What about you, friend? What about you? Do you have faith? What is it in? I'll tell you what my faith is in. I'll tell you what the Bible calls us to have faith in, to trust. The promise of God is that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live a perfect life that you could not live, to die a sinner's death that you deserve, and to be raised from the dead that He might conquer sin and death. That if you put your faith and your trust in Him alone, by His grace... He will grant to you. He will fill your account with the righteousness of Christ alone because you have none to offer on your own. And that when He looks to you on the day of judgment, He sees not your works, not your deeds, not your knowledge, not your understanding, not your own assumptions of how much faith you have or your feelings toward God. He looks toward the righteousness of Christ that has been accounted to you, and he declares, even though you are guilty as guilty can be, that you are not guilty. Will you trust in that Christ? He has done it all on your behalf when you look to him by faith that has come as a result of God's grace. Faith is believing that God is true to His promises and He can do what seems otherwise impossible. Faith is the instrument that God uses to make us right with Him. And if you believe God, it will be counted to you as righteousness. Amen.